everyone. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. My name's Carrie. <laughs> I'm Dane. Very curmudgeonly way of saying your name there. My name's Carr. I don't know, Dane, that I was curmudgeonly. So, what are you going to talk about? We are going to rip something from today's headlines, as I promised, with our weird bit from just a few days ago. That is true, you did. It is. With the, the ripped from today's headline part won't be that long, and then we'll go back in time to an interesting story that relates to what's happening in today's headlines. And that, of course, is right now, as we speak, we're recording this on Sunday, February 12th, and the latest is that a fourth object has been shot from the sky by U.S. forces over Lake Huron in Michigan. The first, of course, being the very large Chinese spy balloon that had its little, you know, I guess, what, first hit Alaska, then went through Canada, and then followed the jet stream all the way across the continental U.S. to right when it was over the North Carolina coast over the water, shot it down at the F-22, China, of course, says, oh, no, no, it's just an innocent weather balloon, you guys. You're jerks, man. And no one believes them. So that makes four total unidentified aerial phenomena. Yes, a UAE is the new phrase for a UFO, by the way. You what? UAE, unidentified aerial phenomena. Oh, okay. That's um, the more accepted term among actual scientists and researchers over a UFO. Hmm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take the world by storm. You, you wait. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you'll see it more and more. Trust me. Okay. So four things have now been, four objects have now been shot down. These last three are all smaller than the first one, but they still appear, appear to be balloons. And, and as of now, as of what we know right now, we know very little about exactly, are they spy balloons? Are they something else? I don't know. Yeah. What's your theory? I have no idea. I mean, yes, obviously they're spies. Didn't you tell me that you had heard that they thought the first big one was dropping smaller little they thought, balloonlets. Well, that was a possibility uh, of you know what its purpose was. So these theoretically, then these three could be from yeah. the mothership. Yeah, in a sense, that's interesting. I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. In fact, by the time this comes on to the uploaded and you're listening to it, we may know a lot more. We probably do. We probably will. It's become kind of a big deal, isn't it? Though. Yeah. China apparently has this renewed focus on what I think most people consider a relatively low-tech option that was initially a long time ago actually very, very cutting edge in war and potential wars. You mean the whole balloon thing? The whole balloon thing, yes, exactly. First, I'm going to walk you through a little history of using balloons as weapons of war and reconnaissance, and then we'll spend the most amount of time on, by far, the most involved uh, and most numerous attempt to use balloons as weapons of war in the history of humankind so far. Okay. So first, a little bit, just a little bit of history. Balloons as some kind of, in some form of balloons as part of the machinery of war goes all the way back to the Han Dynasty in China almost 2,000 years ago. I don't know if it was the emperor or one of his generals or something would use lanterns, light them on fire and on tethers, and that told relief forces, come get me, (laughs) we're in trouble. It was a signal. It was used as signaling. But balloons were... We always thought of, hey, if we could somehow master that, we could, and control that, we could use those things as the, you know, the 
proverbial bird's eye view, get a real high look at the battlefield or troop movements or whatever. They yeah. could be a, a, you know, a real game changer. And that had been around for a very long time. Uh, you know, the thought of that, the potential of that had been around for a very long time. But it wasn't manned air balloons, which you need to put somebody up there. Yeah. Weren't feasible until the late 18th century, the right. late 1700s by, and they were more or less invented by the Montgolfier brothers of France. The who brothers? The Montgolfier. Huh. Jacques Etienne and Joseph Michel. Both hyphenated first names. Right? Huh. Kind of cool. They, and one of their primary arguments for, hey, you should back our endeavors was weapons of war. They could be used for exactly that. They could be used as aerial reconnaissance or even potentially to drop bombs or at least for like an incendiary device. You know, it was filled with combustible hot air to make them rise. They, essentially, yeah. it was they had a controlled fire to have the balloon rise. By the way, they initially thought it was smoke, not the hot air that really? made. So the more smoky, the better. Wow. And then they quickly realized <laughs> that wasn't true or fun. And so they realized it was hot air, but that hot air was very combustible. So maybe we can send unmanned balloons and, you know, start fires and things like that on enemy territory. So the French army then pretty much immediately in the 1790s, the early 1790s, they used balloons to spy on their enemies. They had a division called the Aerostatic Corps. France had a thing called the Aerostatic Corps, which was yeah. a, basically a balloon division, balloon people, balloon aerialist. It was an awesome name, I think, as you have to admit. And they used tethered balloons to go up in the air, check enemy movements, check like for artillery placement, things like that. Yeah. During the first wars were, you know, Austria and Britain and everybody and the Dutch Republic tried to gang up on France because they were led by the hated revolutionaries. All these monarchies going, no, 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 no. We don't like that. Yeah. That threatens us. Napoleon himself, though, was initially not a huge fan so when he came to power, or shortly after he came to power, I think it was 1799, he said, now we're disbanding this aerostatic core. But later on, when he thought, we should think about invading England. And England had a really good navy, so he knew that was not a viable way. So he thought, maybe we could invade England through balloons. Wow. Yeah, not a great idea. So Napoleon... Being a very smart strategic thinker, he went to ask the expert experts. And so he went to ask his top balloon expert, who was the title, was the aeronaut of official festivals. That sounds like a fun title. It is a fun title. Her name was Sophie Blanchard. Wow. You heard that right. Her name was Sophie Blanchard. She was married to some other guy named Blanchard. I forgot, I forgot his first name was Joseph, maybe. And he died. And she took over and became a, the, the leading balloon expert in, in France. And wow. he, so he said, hey, can we use balloons to go attack and invade England? And she said, I don't think so. She thought about it, gave some thought, and said, no, I don't think that's a great idea because the winds over the English Channel are very unpredictable. Oh, so yeah. he said, high probability, bad thing happens. So Napoleon, again, Napoleon was a rational person. He said, okay, dropped it. No more invasion of England by balloons. That's why we have yeah. not heard of that event, because it never happened. Yeah. So both sides used balloons in the American Civil War. Mainly the Union side, the North, they had something called the Union Army Balloon Corps. <laughs> and that, they used that again for reconnaissance, maybe. They used coal gas to inflate their balloons. So wow. hydrogen would soon take over 
for that. And of course, later would be helium, much less combustible than hydrogen. But there, yeah. you know, there's various ways. Just really, all you're trying to do is heat air. So any kind of a fuel would work. It wasn't very successful, though. It wasn't considered kind of worth the cost. So after a couple of years, they disbanded it. The British used balloons in some African campaigns in the late 1800s. But in World War I, it was kind of considered the highlight, the best time for balloons. They kind of reached the military zenith. And again, both the Axis powers and the Allied powers used balloons, mostly for reconnaissance, not a whole lot for as weapons yet. Yeah. But using balloons, especially to, to see, you know, look at the battlefield, and then often start an artillery bombardment was so common. It, was, it, was, it became so common that it gave rise to the idiom, quote, the balloons going up which meant that a battle was about to start. Oh. So you'd say, oh, I think the balloon's going up. And uh, <laughs> my, my, I'm not positive that was really ever a thing, but one source I read yeah. said, yeah, people would say, the balloon's going up. Oh, no, batten down the hatches. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe. Let's try to repopularize that. It didn't last, did it? Now, like if you think a fight's going to start, say, oh, man, I think the balloon's going to go up. <laughs> Look at those two dudes. Something like that. Let's sure. try it. Sure. Do it. I'm sure tomorrow you'll see some, yeah. some dudes starting up a fight and you can you're, use your new term. You're pretty influential on social media from what I understand, <laughs> sure. from what I've been told. So Great Britain launched something they called Operation Outward during World War II. And that used balloons to attack German positions on mainland Europe, even into Germany. And at first, though, I, I, this might have been before the actual started, but in the early stages of considering this tactic, some on the English side objected to it, and they said, quote, attacks of this nature should not be originated from a cricketing country. What does that mean? It means like... They're too classy it's to not Exactly. Like it's not honorable. Wow. It's, you know, World War II, you know? Yeah. Because Hitler was honorable. Yes. Or war is ever honorable. Yeah, no. It, it, that person, whoever the hell that or those people were quickly sidelined and they went ahead and they did it. What they did was they'd make these really cheap, easily manufactured balloons, nothing very sophisticated at all. They'd make and send upward of a hundred thousand of them over oh, the course wow. of the war. And they held either small incendiary bombs and hoping to start fires. You know, right. just go over there, blow something up, start a fire, just create yeah. havoc. Yeah. The other thing they did, and this is interesting, they would trail these like seven hundred foot metal wires and hope to catch on to like the electrical grid, like power lines and oh. things like that, and knock out power wow. for a time. Did it ever work? Yes. It oh, worked wow. actually pretty well. Oh, and in fact, they were so cheap and they're so e relatively easy to do. They only cost about 35 shillings each to make, which is about 100 pounds now. Right. Oh, wow. Which makes you realize, I know, yeah. you think 100 pounds for 35 shillings? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So 35 shillings in 1940-something was about 100 pounds now, but that's still incredibly dirt cheap. And they right. did. They were successful. They did do some damage in German cities. They knocked out some power grids for a while. Unfortunately, also, the heart, again, balloons are at the mercy of the winds yeah. for the most part. And that's why they were considered a little bit unpredictable because a couple of times they went into like neutral countries. They caused some fires in like Sweden, I think. And they also, uh, sometimes the winds would change rapidly and they'd blow right back to right. toward England, <laughs> which is not good. So yeah. In fact, that's one of the things that's interesting about the whole Chinese Spy balloon is just how, was that completely at the mercy of the winds? My understanding is that the first one, the big one, actually had some level of control, which they may or may not have lost, and yeah. explaining why it, it you know, 
just followed the jet stream across the, the U.S. But at this time, there's vir- you know virtually no steering whatsoever and very little control of any sort. Yeah. The English ones, they would go off at relatively low altitudes. And I think they just relied more or less. I mean, they had an altimeter, but they relied more or less on just sort of running out of steam and landing somewhere on mainland Europe. Yeah. You know, Germany controlled pretty much all of mainland Europe. After the war, after World War II, the United States used high-altitude balloons to do things like detect nuclear testing in the USSR. In fact, there's a thing called Project Mogul, which was designed to do that and may have been the answer to the Roswell UFO incident. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that when we do finally the Roswell USO, UFO incident. They also had something called the E-77 balloon, and that was designed to drop biological weapons Ooh, onto gross. enemy territory, yeah. But what they were doing for this, they used like anti-crop things. I don't know exactly what, but they would use things. The intent was to drop it over um, enemy territory and destroy crops. Yeah. It needed, you wanted it dispersed as much as possible, and it's like spores and things like that, right? So yeah. you needed a very light medium to be very widely dispersed. Yeah. So you know what they used? Uh-uh. Feathers. Oh. So they'd lace feathers and some kind of bad stuff. Right. And then <laughs> go, yeah, you know, use balloons to drop them over enemy territory and hopefully disperse over yeah. uh, farmland. Huh. The E-77 balloons were tested in a little town named Vernalis, California. Never heard of it. Toward the end of 1954. The reason you've never heard of it, because I don't know that many people live there. Yeah. I don't think many people ever live there. It's up in the Central Valley. It's not that far from Tracy. It's in California's Central Valley, kind of the upper part of the Central Valley. It has a population of, I don't know what, because even its Wikipedia page doesn't mention a population. <laughs> so I, I know. So I looked at it, it's, I looked at it on Google Maps. Yeah. And it looks like it's some, some farm, you know, uh, buildings, big yeah. farm, warehouse distribution buildings. It's on the, the uh, Highway 33, which is not a major highway in, Cal- yeah. in California, but still a transportation corridor. And um, it looked like a handful of houses. Huh. So, very small town, but in 1954, they tested this E-77 balloons just to see if it worked. Presumably, they didn't really put poisonous stuff on the feathers. Yeah, hopefully. They just wanted to see. And it was considered a pretty good performance, but they were never used in war. The E-77 program never went that far. The U.S. had another thing called Weapon System 124A, codename (laughs) The Flying Cloud. It's pretty cool. Whoever makes up code names, I want that job. I just want to make up code names. I know I won't, won't <laughs> probably, be that busy, but... Probably not a full-time job. I, know, I feel like it should be. <laughs> well, who, they do have a lot of projects, probably. I know. I've just been making up code names all day long. Name, yeah. You try to sneak in like a dirty code name, code name Felcher, and just see what this <laughs> happens. See if anybody notices. And go, okay, that sounds good to me. Is that a friend of yours? Yeah, yeah, no. Someone I know. <laughs> code name Donkey Punch. <laughs> so... Uh, Flying Cloud was also born in the mid-1950s, And the intent there was to drop actual munitions from high-altitude balloons. It was thought that this could even be a relatively safe, not not really, kind of a a backup means to deliver nuclear weapons in a so-called broke-back scenario, which may not mean what you think. Yeah. It means, (laughs) it probably doesn't mean what you think. It means, uh, like, basically your normal ICBMs, et cetera, are are knocked Mm -hmm. out. So, okay. Worst case, we'll send a bunch of nukes over your territory, USSR, on balloons. It's kind of like, see, don't attack us. We'll, we'll figure out a way to get you. Again, this program was never actually used either. But the Air Force did test it, and they launched 41 balloons under this flying cloud, cloud program. Very few hit their targets. 
like six hit their targets, another six like, that's not too bad. And the yeah. rest were like far off. So they said, no, this isn't going to work. It's just, again, it's just not predictable. It's too yeah. unreliable. But even today, besides China, Israel uses spy balloons essentially to, to um, have constant error reconnaissance of their entire border area. Yeah. They're, they're a very strong advocate, as is China now, who's been building this massive spy yeah. balloon, apparently armada for years now. And um, I mean, apparently, and I've I've read that China's spy satellite program is actually quite good. You think, yeah. oh, they're they're filling up a, a something they can't do well. No, they do spy satellites well, so they think they can get more information from balloons. And apparently, they thought it was also going to be cost free, but it is not cost free. It's causing them quite the international black yeah. eye, and deservedly so. It's not like you know, we, I mean, we've used spy balloons for yeah. years. I don't think we do anymore though, because now we have satellites covering everywhere. Yeah. I so. don't know. Ring of satellites. So, as I mentioned, by far the biggest threat and the, the greatest use of war of balloons in wartime was from Japan during World War II. Yes, directed at the U.S. The Japanese Army, actually, way back as, as early as 1933, had been working on using balloons as weapons or some kind of weapon delivery device under a program that was called Fugo. F-U-G-O. Now, I finally found foo means weapon. So I don't know this, but I'm guessing that go means balloon. But <laughs> nothing I could find um, told me what go means. So, but, so I, huh. I what, what do you do? You're not, you, you drop it into Google Translate. Yeah. Japanese to English, simple as can be. Well, Fugo, according to Google Translate, uh -oh. translates into English as Fugo. <laughs> Big help, Google. <laughs> if anybody challenges me on that, Google is getting worse and worse and worse. I point you to Exhibit A. So it's not helpful there. So I, I think it means it for sure means weapon, but let's just call it that. It was it was so Fugo started in the 1930s, and it kind of plotted along for a couple years. They tried out some relatively small balloons. They filled them with hydrogen. They again, U.S had almost a near monopoly, I think, on helium for a very long time. And hydrogen, again, is more... The Hindenburg blew up because it was full of hydrogen, not helium. It probably wouldn't right. have unless it was, of course, sabotaged and it was bombed, like some conspiracy mm -hmm. theorists think. And they, these balloons carried bombs with fuses, like fused bombs, but they only went... They were about 70 miles. They could go about 70 miles, so they weren't super... So they just kind of scrapped it. About 1935, they said, ah, drop it, Operation Fugo is over. Then in April 1942, during World War II, as you know, what happened in April of 1942, Carrie? You a scholar of World War II. I have no idea. Yeah, I didn't either. But uh, the <laughs> Doolittle raid, the James Doolittle, famous pilot, he led a bunch of the Flying Tigers, uh, bombers, small bombers, flew just all the way, I can't remember they took off, did they take off from Wake, whatever, they took off, or maybe it's Hawaii, and they were able to fly over Japan and bomb Actual home islands of Japan. Out of nowhere, Japan did not think we had anywhere close to capability of doing that. They couldn't then travel all the way back to U.S. territory, so they continued flying over onto China, the Chinese mainland, and were able to land in parts of China not occupied by the Japanese military and land safely. This was just a bolt from the blue for the Ch Japanese. They were stunned by it. They, it was a big propaganda loss for them. The home folks were, you know... Startled, so they really wanted some kind of retaliation. They said, "Okay, you do that to us, we'll do that to you." Conveniently, forgetting Pearl Harbor, <laughs> yeah, 
so it, it just kind of changed Japanese attitudes and, and Japanese leaders clamored for the military said, find us something that can retaliate on the U.S. mainland. Mm-hmm. We need to get, we need to bring the war to the U.S. mainland somehow in some way. Yeah. So balloons were on the table again and Project Fugo was resurrected. The efforts were led by a laboratory in Japan called the Noburito Laboratory. I'm assuming <laughs> founded by a guy who hated Mexican food. Yeah. I'm guessing. I don't know. <laughs> they uh, initially, though, didn't just look into balloons. They looked at other options. One of the things they considered was sending long-range bombers from, I, I guess, near. I don't, Japan didn't have a lot of off-islands. So somewhere near the Japanese mainland, these long-range bombers would, would be sent to the U.S. mainland and do bombing runs. They could even be from aircraft carriers, I imagine, but they, they weren't going to get that close because presumably these would be suicide missions. Yeah. The, the thing I read it described it as one-way long-range bombing missions. So that's interesting. So that, that was seriously considered by the Japanese at this time. Another method was going to do something like that, but hey, let's use submarines. They don't have the capacity of aircraft carriers, but submarines could launch like small seaplanes and you could load up these with a couple few bombs, not much, but still, this is almost more for propaganda and just for feeling good about yourself than it was anything else. And so they thought they'd put these little seaplanes on these submarines, launch them, and they could do their bombing run over the California coast or or Oregon or something like that, and then come back and land on the submarine and escape that way. The Japanese considered this option uh, and actually even put it into practice uh, one time. That's it. Really? They just tried it once because what happened was that a Japanese submarine kind of cozied up to the coast of Oregon mm-hmm. and they launched a Yokosuka E-14Y seaplane. Okay. You were, you were something of a, a warplane buff, so mm-hmm. I thought I'd make sure and be very specific about Thank it. Thank you. And it dropped two huge, pretty big, but just two incendiary bombs in the forested depths of the Siskiyou National Forest. Yeah. Heavily forested area. They thought, okay, this, that'll work. Let's drop these bombs. It was on September 9th, 1942. So let's start like a, you know, an, uh, a late summer forest fire and just mess with the U.S. It'll be a big propaganda ploy. It'll be great. What happened, though, was that on the mainland, they were in in Oregon, some eagle-eyed Americans, I don't know if they're forest rangers or what they were, but they saw the planes approaching and they immediately rallied the troops, rallied firefighters. Yeah. And so they saw, and they saw the planes approach. They saw the, the planes drop their bombs and they sent these rescue crews or firefighting crews immediately to that area. And the fires were, were contained before they became anything at all. They, yeah. they're very, they were contained almost immediately. Huh. So the Japanese were very upset about this <laughs> and they stopped that seaplane from submarines program and i guess later documents are found and it's indicated that the planes were launched quote almost exclusively for home propaganda purposes so they weren't they didn't see the long-term validity of that kind of a program what they were already working on and would soon become really the only means of attacking the u.s mainland by japanese forces was balloons so that was the real thing that was that quickly became pretty much the only thing they're working on in this this program which i guess again was i guess was still called fugo which means carrie in english fugo good good japanese meteorologists going back to the 1920s have been studying what we would now call the jet stream this, they, they figured out what altitude it was, roughly what course it did and how it, it you know could move very very fast because the whole idea is you got to keep this 
this, these balloons afloat for a very long time to get over to the U.S. mainland. But they knew about the jet stream, and they had figured out that something, a balloon at a certain altitude could probably, at the right altitude, could probably take something like 30 to 100 hours to reach the mainland. And they thought, well, I think you know, we can work with that. Let's see how we, if we can um, figure out a device, a balloon, that could actually do that. So by March of 1943, there was a team under the command of Major General Sueki Kusaba, and they had more or less perfected a, a usable device. It was a 20-foot, I guess, long or diameter, I'm not sure, a 20-foot balloon that could fly at about 25,000 feet, right for the jet stream, a little bit higher, it's out, a little bit too low, it's too low. And I think about 20 to 25,000 feet was where they wanted it to stay, right? Mm-hmm. And it could last, at this, this prototype could last at least 30 hours. So, you know, you're getting there. They made it from layers of something called washi, which is a paper-like material made from the mulberry bush. It's called the paper, I think it's even called in Japan, the paper mulberry bush. Yeah. I guess they've, they've been making paper for, for quite some time. Well, I have plenty of washi tape. You do? Uh-huh. Washi what? It's called washi tape. Tape? Uh-huh. It, is, is it paper-like? But it's tape, uh, so it's sticky? It's adhesive? Yeah, it's not very paper-like. Uh, this is just this this is described as being quite paper-like. Yeah. Thin layers of this paper-like washi, and they would glue them together with a paste made from the kanayaku, which is a Japanese potato. Hmm. So all, all natural. Yeah. <laughs> They're using bushes and potatoes <laughs> to make balloons. Not, you know, nylon and stuff like that. I, I don't know if this is probably just for materials. They needed yeah. that, you know, these are things they could afford to art, you know, they could use as material because it wasn't needed in other parts of the war, I imagine. Yeah. To, and since they didn't have a whole lot of, you know, person power to spare, but they needed a lot of people to put these together because it wasn't easy. It was all handmade. Yeah. So what do they think they did? Teenage high school girls. Really? Yes. Like okay. they're there. They're not off, they're not off being killed. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they used hundreds of teenage high school Japanese girls. Oh, and funny. they're, you know, just work exhausting hours. Wow. I mean, hours and hours and hours under these, I'm sure, difficult conditions where they're sitting there putting the material together, gluing it. And, um, the, and then what they do is they put it together and they take that raw material to like large indoor arenas, I guess, like music halls or something like that, and they do the final assembly there, presumably with adults, I think. <laughs> Initially, the balloons were to be launched in the dead of night. They, they you know, and they'd, what they do is, is have a submarine um, come up to the surface near like maybe 600 miles or so off the coast of the U.S., do it at night so it's less likely to be detected and then send these balloons off from that relatively close distance. Yeah. And that was going to happen in August 1943. They were all set to go to launch the first of, of these war balloons from these balloon bombs from the submarines off the coast when the high command said, nope, we're not going to do it. The reason was because the U.S. was starting to, had already turned the tide. This is after Midway Island. The U.S. had well turned the tide in the Pacific Theater, and Japanese submarines were desperately needed in the Pacific Theater. They mm-hmm. couldn't afford to send a bunch of submarines, or apparently even one, I guess, yeah. into off to the coast. It's a long way away to get to the coast and all the way back from California. So none could be spared, so they dropped that idea. So the folks at No Burrito, which would <laughs> yeah. be a... Uh, I've kind of a funky name for a Mexican restaurant now that I think about it, wouldn't it? Nope, just tacos and quesadillas. <laughs> uh, we don't have burritos. Sorry about that. I digress. So, yes, you do. 
they said, let's improve on that. Let's see what we can do. Remember that they needed up to 100 hours in, under certain conditions to reach the U.S. mainland. So, and these initial ones were only at best 30 or so. So they, you know, if we're going to do it from actual launch it from the actual Japanese home islands, it's a long trip. It's about 6,000 miles. It's almost 10,000 kilometers to get. So that's just a long way. It's going to take a long time. So they need to up the level of sophistication of these balloons. Also, by the way, they figured out by this time that the best time to do that with respect to what the, what the jet stream was doing mm-hmm. would be winter months. Oh. So they needed to work fast if they weren't. Although this is summer 43, they actually needed some more time than that because they actually didn't get really started until the winter 44 of late, wow. the latter part of 1944. Not the not the first winter, the next uh-huh. winter. Winter goes across years. It's very yes, confusing. It but this is the, it wouldn't <laughs> get going for a, a little more than a year. The balloons, again, would have to maintain an altitude initially at over 30,000 feet, and then they can come down a little bit. Again, they would need to go 30 to 100 hours to reach the U.S. mainland. They needed to kind of get then get them down to a much lower altitude before they could launch their bombs even uh, and... Um, so it, it took, you know, it's going to be very difficult to do this. Again, these are these are not yeah. easy to control. You really don't steer them at all, but what they really needed to do was control altitudes. So, and it's a lot harder than, you, than it might even sound, especially yeah. with World War II era technology. Yeah. The British, remember the British were just doing pretty unsophisticated balloons. It, it did well, but yeah. it was not nearly. The Japanese developed an ingenious system of 32 sandbags, ballast essentially, yeah. on uh, a, an aluminum wheel. So think of a wheel of sandbags and that it, each of the sandbags had a little gunpowder blowout plug to essentially drop that soundbag at certain intervals. And this, the ballast was attached to, I guess, barometers that can help, and, and altimeters too, I guess, to, to figure out you know air pressure and how high they are, how right. low they are. Yeah. And that essentially, depending on the, on the time, if the uh, balloon started to dip too low, Boop, they'd pop off a sandbag and, and rise up to the desired altitude huh. over the, as they're heading over the Pacific Ocean toward the U.S. Yeah. Another altimeter would release the actual bombs. It'd be loaded, just, usually just a couple of bombs, not, not, but you know, big, usually anti-personnel bombs or something like that, or maybe incendiary yeah. bombs to try to start a fire. And the, this other altimeter would release the actual bombs when the balloon got down to like thirteen to 20,000 feet. That's when they wanted to release the bombs. So again, you're trying to stay in that jet stream. You don't yeah. get, if you get too high, you drop some, um, I'm sorry, if you, get, if you start getting too low too soon, you drop some sandbags and you had another device to get you to, to, to figure out when you're at the right altitude at the right time that you were hopefully now over the U.S. mainland, hopefully right. from the Japanese perspective, not from our perspective, from the U.S., no. <laughs> so uh, these two mechanisms kind of kept the balloon from getting too low initially and then depending on the timing, um, the balloon would be over the mainland uh, when it dropped its bombs. To prevent the U.S. then from getting their hands on these pretty sophisticated balloons, the release of the last bomb would automatically ignite a three-minute fuse that would explode, and it was attached to a block of picric acid, P-I-C-R-I-C. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. (laughs) This block of picric acid would then sort of like melt the carriage that it was in. Yeah. And then that would in turn, <laughs> oh I know it's like a mousetrap, it, that would in turn be followed by an 82-minute fuse that ignited the hydrogen 
that floated the damn thing, and that would burn up oh, the actual balloon itself. Right. So they, they wanted to leave as little behind yeah. as possible. We'll find in a minute that it wasn't super successful. Although, given how many that we found versus how many were launched, it actually probably was successful the vast majority of the time. Yeah. So in late 1944, the Japanese started testing this delivery system, but they did so at first without munitions, just bombless. Yeah. They just wanted to, to see if it worked, see if this whole very sophisticated, very complex yeah. system actually worked and would get to, to the desired altitude at the desired time at the desired place. And it more or less did. The first Japanese balloon bomb that was found in the U.S. was actually one of these, one of these non-bomb carrying balloons. It was spotted in the Pacific Ocean just off the coast of San Pedro. That's a town that, of course, we know well, but is is near Los Angeles. It's basically basically now the city of Los Angeles' harbor near Long Beach in Southern California. And this final design, this balloon that actually worked and they started using in late 1944, was now 33 feet in diameter, and it carried 19,000 cubic feet of hydrogen. I don't know if that's super impressive or not, because I don't know what that means. But somebody out there who understands yeah. cubic feet is going, oh my God, that's impressive. <laughs> sounds like a lot. It does sound like a lot. That's a lot. It could lift about 300 pounds. I guess that, it, that must include the carriage, I guess. So it, that's why it couldn't have that many bombs, because bombs are heavy. heavy yes. mm. Japan had the capacity to launch roughly 200 balloons a day. Wow. They didn't, they, I don't know if they ever reached that level. Well, you know what? At one point, they probably did, but they had huge capacity to do so. And they planned on launching 15,000 sorties by March of 1945. So it's now November, early November. The, it's the right season. It's the time to do it. They, so they kind of had to hurry because the winter is fading. Their meteorologist said, look, the best time is about a 50-day window in November, December. I mean, they could do it longer than that, but they thought that was the best time to do it. So at 5 a.m. 0500, mm-hmm. to people who like that, <laughs> on November 3rd, 1944, the first armed balloon of Project Fugo headed east up onto the jet stream toward the U.S. And then they sent more and more and more and very quickly, the folks in the U.S. started finding these balloons. The first mm-hmm. one was found on November 14th off the uh, coast of uh, Kalua, Hawaii. Another one was found in Thermopolis, Wyoming on December 6th. Wow. I know, all the way to Wyoming. Yeah. You'll see they, they, got, they went pretty far. The munitions for um, the, the bombs that were on that Wyoming one actually did explode and the explosion was heard miles away, yeah. but it's Wyoming. There was no one right. there. It didn't hurt anybody. It was no. It exploded nowhere near any actual people. Then they started finding another. They found another one soon after that in Montana. Then another in Alaska, and then another in Oregon. So they started popping up, and the U.S. is going, huh. "What the hell's going on here?" U.S. command started sending word out to all defense forces in the western part of the U.S. And especially, they told forest rangers. They, I think they kind of figured out, you know, we think these um, these munitions may be intended to start forest fires. So they, yeah. uh, like that one in, uh, that was found. So they, so they said, keep your eyes open, keep your eyes in the sky. They weren't completely sure, though, because some in the U.S. also thought maybe they could be some kind of biological weapon. And so they told veterinarians, 4-H clubs, um, agricultural officials, keep, if you see anything that's like a weird disease in an animal, yeah. tell us right away. They were worried that they're, essentially the Japanese were going huh. to try to uh, you know, kill livestock and things like that through some yeah. kind of biological attack. 
recoveries of these balloons sort of uh, coming fast and furious at this point, though. They found uh, more in Alaska, they also then Arizona, California, Idaho, Nevada, Colorado, Utah, Texas, all over the western U.S., but then also much further inland in South Dakota, Nebraska, and as far as Michigan, which wow. is on the eastern half yeah. of the U.S., not to the coast, but still a long-ass way away. Canada found a lot as well. They found them in several in British Columbia, but also Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and both the Yukon Territory and the Northwest Territories. Some were even found in northern Mexico. Wow. And many of them were found at sea. Just yeah. they didn't make it yeah. the whole way. Planes from the Army Air Force, the precursor to the, the what's now the Air Force, and the Navy were sent up. So they get reports like, you know, hey, we see one. We think we see a balloon. So they'd send up the a, a plane to go try to shoot it down. Mm-hmm. And this this they sent up these planes several times throughout the war. But it just, it was rarely, in fact, you know, quite a few times, it was rarely super effective because it's just bad weather or um, it was not where it was said to be. Right. Things like that. Yeah. Just So only about 20 balloons were ever shot down by U.S. forces during the war. And we'll, we'll hear and admit how many uh, balloons were sent over. It's a lot. Many in the U.S. just like could not think this, these can't be coming from Japan. That's yeah. insane. That's impossible. They can't do that. So maybe some people thought, hey, these, those clever Germans in German POW camps out in the Western U.S. are somehow of a secret program yeah. in a POW camp and are doing it. Others thought that this is not surprising. They thought Japanese, remember, Japanese American citizens yeah. who were interned were doing this. That yeah. they were, again, secret program under their very watchful eyes. Yeah. They were actually, really, these. They, where were they getting How? the bombs? Yeah. So that was dumb. <laughs> Other people, though, thought more reasonably that Japanese submarines were doing this. But I, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. But I think by this point, I don't know that there are many Japanese sub- submarines getting all the way to the U.S. coast. I mean, they were, yeah. by this, this is late 44. Japan was clearly on the retreat. They would have had, their submarines would have been almost certainly very near Japan itself or, you know, some of the islands in the increasingly narrow ring around Japan as they continued to lose islands and lose the war. So they, but then finally what they did is they found enough of them and they were able to look at the material, I guess. I'm not sure exactly what. And for whatever reason, somehow they were able to figure out, no, these did come from mainland Japan and that, wow, we don't know how they're doing it, but they're doing it. Mm -hmm. So despite all of these balloons reaching the U.S. mainland, because many, many did, most did, it seems like, Japanese officials actually had no idea how effective they were. They heard no news about any explosions or fired or fires or anything else. I'll tell you why in a minute. But by February of 1945, they were pretty desperate. They, wanted to, this, they needed to sell this back at home. I mean, a lot of this was saying, look, we're doing it. We're bringing the war to the U.S. This gives us hope. Yeah. So they started releasing propaganda stories in Japan saying that, oh, hey, our balloons caused these devastating forest fires. Are they, you know, uh, cause mass panics of these U.S. cities and hundreds of thousands of Americans have either been killed or injured by our balloons. All glory to the fatherland. Yeah. I don't know if they said that last part. They may have, though. <laughs> Completely fictitious. Just absolutely made up. They're trying to just, again, that was meant for the right. consumption of the home folks for sure. Yeah. There were some close calls, though. In early 1945, a 12-year-old kid named Robert E. Johnston and his family were going to move from Oskaloosa, Iowa, 
to Roseburg, Oregon. They're going to start a, a, a ranch there, I think, which is a, a town near the southern coast of Oregon. But so they're driving away. They're still in Iowa. They're just starting their, I don't know, 1,900-mile journey to Oregon. Yeah. And Johnston looks up in the sky, and he says, quote, that's when I saw the paper balloons come over. It was scary. We thought that they were as big as the moon. They were down low. They came right over the top of our house. They were perfectly round with lines hanging down. I think I saw four or five of them go over. So he was witnessing all wow. the way in Iowa. Iowa, for those of you, it's, it's, again, it's probably more than halfway across the U.S. from coast to coast on the mainland. It's a long way off. It's probably, so that would probably be, if it's 6,000 miles from Japan to the U.S. coast, that's probably almost 8,000 miles those balloons yeah. had traveled that Robert Johnson saw in Iowa. And one of those balloons, apparently, presumably one of those balloons that Robert Johnson saw, then did drop to the ground at about 5 p.m., so later that afternoon. And uh, a 12, another 12-year-old kid, yeah. really enough, named Joe Ford, he saw it descend, and he saw it land in a pasture on the farm of a neighbor named J.M. McNee. And this is near the town of Lawrence in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So he runs and tells his dad... And, he's, and he and his dad then run over to McNee Farm, and the farm manager, his name is Paul Felsing, says, well, let's go check it out. So the three <laughs> of them run off to the pasture to investigate what the heck had just landed in their field. And apparently, I don't know if the self-destruct mechanism just didn't, maybe it wasn't quite timed right because the balloon was still intact, and it was slowly deflating. Yeah. And one of them noticed that, hey, that's a lit fuse. It must be that 82-minute fuse, I guess. Yeah. That's a lit fuse, and it's attached to a patch on the balloon, on the outside of the balloon. I mean, they, they aren't, again, there's no news about these things. Right. So they just, this is a balloon? What yeah. the heck is that from? They didn't think, there might be some incendiary right. bombs in there. Even so, though they noticed the lit fuse. They noticed the lit fuse. It's like, <laughs> what's going on? The lit fuse on a balloon? Huh. And so one of them starts stomping on the fuse. Yeah. It didn't go out. Oh, no. It won't go out. Finally, this is Iowa, 1945. They have knives. So some of them reached, you know, yeah. got the fuse and cut it and saved the day. I don't know. Wow. I didn't read anything that was there were uh, bombs still in there. But if there were bombs still in yeah. there, they just avoided being blown to bits quite narrowly. So Japanese propaganda talked about American carnage. That was not true. It was just in their imagination. There was a reason, though, that they were not getting the inf- information. Remember, I, I mentioned a minute ago yeah. that they didn't hear anything? And the reason, of course, was, you, you probably won't be surprised, was that the news was censored mm-hmm. by the U.S. government. The office, I think it was literally called the Office of Censorship yeah. or something like yeah. that. A, a non-Orwellian name. <laughs> a very honest name. Something like that. They, in, um, I think it was early January 1945, after this point, only a few, but a handful of balloons have been found, remember Hawaii and, and, and Wyoming, et cetera. Yeah. They realized what the Japanese were doing, and they realized why they were doing it. So they, the U.S. Office of Censorship told, or really asked American newspapers, don't say anything about these things. Yeah. Uh, radio stations do. A lot of news was on radio stations. So they went to radio stations and newspapers all throughout the West and U.S. and said, if you hear anything about a balloon landing or anything like that, don't report Keep it, it. mom. Yeah. Don't report it at all. They got pretty much universal cooperation with this. The wow. only event that the Japanese ever knew about in real time was the one in Wyoming. Yeah. 
in late 1944. And that was early on before yeah. this dictum had come down. Yeah. That was it. That would never it, happen here. No, it would not happen these days at all. No, no. You'd have bad people doing bad things. So, but there was a downside to this censorship. And that was that some Americans might go up to down balloons and you know stomp exactly, on fuses yeah. And, yeah. And, and go right up to them and something bad could happen. There could be a massive explosion or, or something like that. If the payload hadn't been dropped, uh, bad things could happen. So this meant Americans didn't recognize these balloons right. as dangerous things or, any, or, or to be on the lookout for other you know, bombs that might yeah. be dangerous as well. So for months, this never, nothing ever happened. It never materialized. I mean, this is going on. Um, it wasn't until May 5th, 1945, that luck ran out for some folks in the U.S. Uh-oh. On that day, uh, the Reverend Archie Mitchell, he was a pastor, he was driving with his 26-year-old wife, Elise. Some uh, sources call her Elsie, but I mostly read Elise, his wife, Elise. And they also had five Sunday school students with them. They were going to the Fremont National Forest near a place called Gerhardt Mountain. They'd picked out a nice little place to have a picnic. Mm, so they nice. packed a nice picnic lunch. They were from Bly, Oregon. That's in Eastern Oregon, which is the more, more the further off the coast part of Oregon. And they, Elise was pregnant with she and Archie's first child. So given this, she almost gave the picnic a pass because she was feeling sick. She had a lot of morning sickness at this time. But she'd baked a chocolate cake the night before, and she didn't want to. She really was looking forward to it. Yeah. the kids, a bunch of kids. She was going to be a mom soon, so she took her chocolate cake and all the picnic basket, and they rode on out toward the mountains there. And she, so it was her and Archie, and then five kids were named Eddie Engine, Jay Gifford, Sherman Shoemaker, Dick Patsky, and his sister Joan Sis. Patsky, they were basically ages 11 to 14. Most were 13. Okay. <laughs> What's wrong? What's, what? Those are some funny names. No, those are just classic American, middle uh, American, middle of the century names. Uh, sis, too. Yeah. I just, I hate that. So they were getting very close to the picnic spot when morning sickness hit, and Elise says, Archie, you need to pull over right now. I think I might hurl. Yeah. I don't know if she said hurl. She probably didn't. Probably not. So he does. He pulls over, kind of just, just stops, I think, in the road. I'm sure it's a, it's a pretty rural road. He stops and lets her out. She gets out. I don't think she threw up. She's just, you know, just getting some fresh air. She's breathing. The other kids get out with her just to stretch their legs. They're not quite there yet, but they, you know, it's been presumably a long drive. And so they're stretching their legs and out on the side of the road there when Archie sees a construction crew just happens to be right there and he goes up and just chats with them for a little while again let her get some air and hopefully not throw up and he starts talking about like hey how's the local fishing so (laughs) he's talking with this construction crew and Elise and the kids just sort of wander off they thought let's stretch it let's go for a little walk and about a hundred yards off of the road this is kind of Ponderosa pine country about 100 yards away, Elise and the kids are surrounding something. And again, Archie's talking to the construction crew, and he hears suddenly his wife shout, look what I found, dear. I know. This oh, is, this no. is not going to end well. Archie looked over and just instinctively knew something was not right by the, the big thing, yeah. the big metal thing that they were looking at and surrounding. 
And he later told a newspaper, quote, I hurriedly called a warning to them, but it was too late. Just then there was a big explosion. I ran up and they're all laying there dead. Oh my God. A construction worker named Richard Barnhouse would remember that, quote, there was a terrible explosion. Twigs flew through the air. Pine needles began to fall, dead branches and dust and dead logs went up, end quote. Elise, Elise and the kids had, as you guessed it, found a Japanese balloon bomb, yeah. a, a huge, probably a huge anti-personnel bomb, which sends out shrapnel and things yeah. like that. It was horrific. A bomb expert would later guess, though, that one of the kids must have kicked the bomb to set it off because it had been sitting there. They, they, it had snow under and the surrounding yeah. area had no had, snow had melted. They think it had been there for several weeks, yeah, sitting there ready to go. And so... They think one of the kids kicked it and exploded it, and it left a foot-deep crater in the ground. The four boys who were there, all of those four boys were killed instantly. Joan Patsky and Elise, though, survived, but for a very short time. They were dead before help could arrive. They probably even just minutes they, they live. This incident, though, would then lead to the U.S. lifting the news blockade on May 22nd. So it took a, took a little while still, but um, they just thought, okay, we need to make sure people are, are wary yeah. or know to be wary. There might be bombs out there in the forest. Don't yeah. go up them, for God's sake. Don't kick them. And that incident in Oregon would be the only fatalities achieved yeah. by the Japanese balloon bomb program during World War II. That was it. The Japanese, by this time, by the way, when that happened, again, that bomb was probably sitting there for weeks. They had already stopped the program. Yeah. They stopped the program at some time, probably in mid-April. And the um, this concluded it just wasn't working, in part, ironically, weirdly, because of the censorship. Right. It did. It's like, well, nothing's happening. We're mm-hmm. not, because they were reading all every American newspaper they can get their hands on, and right. nothing was happening. And so they thought it's just not having the desired effect. The materials were becoming more and more rare. They were running low on hydrogen, for instance. So they ceased this in the program in 1940, in April of 1945. Over those few months, though, from November to April of 1944 to uh, right. April of 1945, they launched over 9,300 balloons. Wow. Most in February, March, by the way, of 1945. So I guess they were sort of ratcheting mm. up because I thought because the best window was a little before that. These balloons were considered the first intercontinental weapon in the history of the world. Not a, not a, not a great thing to be brought yeah. up. Wow. And ironically, weirdly enough, the time of the year, the winter, means what? It means more rain. Yeah. So that probably dampened the impact of these balloons because, at least according to official history, not one single forest fire was started by these balloons, at least not that yeah. can be proven that it was caused by one of the bombs sent over by the Japanese during this time. So mm. it just, you know, it was, it was, it's wet, it's damp. It just, it, right, you know, yeah. if, if it wasn't raining, it had rained not that long ago, especially in places like coastal Oregon yeah. and Washington. Yeah. So other than this horrific slaughter of a pregnant woman and five young teens, the only other effective attack happened on March 10th, 1945. In that case, a balloon short-circuited a, a, the power lines near Toppenish, Washington. You ever heard of Toppenish? No. It's a place where they had a, a facility that was making plutonium for the Manhattan Project, Ooh. which, as you know, is the atomic weapons. Uh-huh. So for three days, it cut off power to this plant, 
and slowed down the manufacture of plutonium, but they were up and running very soon, obviously. Plutonium from this facility was then used in the Fat Man bomb that would, in August, lay waste to Nagasaki. Yeah. Hmm. So, weird irony there. Yeah. Only about 300 balloons were ever recovered by the U.S. and Canadian, and I guess a handful in Mexico as well. Uh, balloons were still found not only just right after the war, but into the 50s, a handful in the 60s, even one in 1970s. Wow. In 2014, a live bomb was found near Lumbee, British Columbia in Canada. Oh, my God. And a balloon... I guess the remains of a balloon were uncovered near McBride, British Columbia in 2019. Wow. That's for sure still out there. They're just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. They're in Sasquatch country, so they're going to be hard to find. And I'm I'm sure they're rotting. The one that they found remains in 2019 is amazing. But the bombs are metal. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we find some more. Mm. Archie Mitchell. The reverend who lived because he was right. chatting about fishing, yeah. he would later go on missions, uh, religious missions, mm-hmm. overseas to find new faithful across the globe. In 1962, he was working at a leprosarium. So I think it's a leper colony, yeah. I think. And he had a new wife named Betty. They worked there, you know, preaching the good word. He was kidnapped by the Viet Cong in 1962. He has never been seen or heard from since. Wow. They never found his remains, so he uh, was probably killed, I I imagine. Jeez. In 1987, a group of women who had been teenagers in Japan during the war and worked on the manufacture of the balloons, they sent a thousand paper cranes in Japan off into the air as a symbol of peace and reconciliation. Oh, okay. And forgiveness. Is that the origin of the thousand... Thing? I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. is it something on Netflix that I don't know about? <laughs> what do you mean? What is that from? Oh, uh, you just see every now and then references to kids making paper cranes. Uh, some... Well, I think paper cranes go back before that. I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I have okay. no idea, <laughs> but I, I bet they do. In 1995. They planted cherry trees. Not the same people, I don't think, but cherry trees were planted. There's a little monument up there in nearby Oregon where this happened. Mm-hmm. And so they planted cherry trees around that monument. Cherry trees is a symbol of Japan. Yeah. And by the way, it's right there. Is, is to, to this day, is a ponderosa pine with a huge gouge in it from the explosion. Oh. But the idea was to plant cherry trees right. to um, you know commemorate mm. the dead. That hmm. was the... Again, the only fatality of this entire Japanese balloon bomb yeah. program that was um, um, a danger throughout World War II. Yeah. The Chinese balloons right now are just to spy on us, but mm-hmm. you never know. If you see one, I don't know. And you see a fuse. Don't touch it. Don't. Don't. Just walk away. Walk yeah. away. Better safe than sorry. <laughs> so that's the story. Thanks, Dean. That's interesting. The Japanese balloon bomb effort, Operation Fugo, Uh which means Fugo. Didn't learn about that in history class. No, probably not. Really? No, did I? Did you? No, I didn't. Now that I think about it. I did see Farewell to Manzanar, but I did not see anything about them making balloons and launching them with the bombs they had there in the internment camps, obviously. (laughs) So that's a balloon story. We grabbed it from today's headlines and quickly went back much further (laughs) in time. 
because, you know, spy balloons aren't that weird. But this was, I hope, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, okay. thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.